How often have you been irritated by having to choose between two candidates for an office where you can't stand either of them? Or been told, if you vote for someone who doesn't stand a chance, you're just giving away the election to the worst choice? Electoral politics in the U.S. make this a familiar problem for voters. And some places have made changes to the way the system works, hoping to fix it. In San Francisco, we elect our officials with something called ranked choice voting. Stephen Hill helped make that happen. There's just many, many examples we're seeing of how U.S. democracy is breaking down. Once you understand that and you start thinking, okay, how are we going to make things better? Then you have to find something you can get your arms around, and that tends to be local election situations. Not everyone is convinced this kind of change is going to fix American democracy. This is Jason McDaniel, a professor at San Francisco State University. It's sort of become like part of the grab bag of things that people will say when they say, oh, our politics is polarized and there's a lot of extremism out there, a lot of problems. Let's, you know, let's change some things. I'm Laura Wenis. In San Francisco, voters don't just pick their favorite candidate. They also pick their second, third, fourth favorite, all the way up to 10th if there's enough people running. Ranked choice voting has been in place in San Francisco since 2004. It doesn't seem to get candidates who don't have much support elected. But how is it shaping our local politics and playing out in other parts of the country? From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. A voter's job with ranked choice voting is, well, to rank their choices. It's the elections department that then has to do the extra legwork of tallying up all the ranked votes. So let's say the Pac-Man ghosts are on the ballot. Inky, Pinky, Blinky, and Clyde get ranked by voters. The polls are closed, and now it's a process of elimination from the bottom up. Pinky gets 35 people's first choice votes, Inky 25, Blinky 25, and Clyde 15. If Pinky had won a simple majority in the first choice votes, we'd stop there. No ranking needed. But she didn't. So on to the next round. Clyde got the least first-choice votes, so he's out. It's between Inky, Pinky, and Blinky now, but the voters who chose Clyde as their favorite still get a say. Each second-choice vote for Inky is another point in his column. Each second-choice vote for Pinky, another point in hers, and so on. At the end of the tally, if nobody has reached 50%, we do the same process again. Inky has the fewest votes of the three and is eliminated. His third-choice votes get put in the column of Blinky and Pinky. With the points from the second and third choices in her column, Pinky wins. Could fourth-place Clyde have gotten elected in this race? Probably not. This system makes it really hard for a fringe candidate to win. If very few people rank you first, you get eliminated. If you don't appeal to a broad base and very few people rank you second, you might be out. It is possible to win if you didn't get the most first-choice votes, assuming you're getting a lot of second- or third-choice votes in the next tallies. Here's an example of what can happen in the traditional plurality-type vote, where the person with the most votes wins, even if it's less than half. The mayor of the town of Fall River, Massachusetts, was indicted on wire fraud and tax evasion charges. In 2019, he was recalled. 61% of voters wanted him out. A plurality vote was held to replace him. Five people ran, including the recalled former mayor. He got 35% of the vote and won 
back in office right after a majority of voters had kicked him out. That's much harder to pull off with ranked choice voting. In San Francisco, Stephen Hill has been working on election reform efforts for many years. He co-founded an organization called Fair Vote. He's sometimes called the architect of ranked choice voting in the Bay Area. I ran the campaigns in San Francisco, Oakland, San Leandro, and Berkeley, not only to pass it, but then to implement it. Back in the 90s, two different ballot measures went before voters to change the way the city did elections. One would have taken us to a kind of proportional representation system. It failed. The other, which passed, moved the city from an at-large election, where everyone voted for every seat on the Board of Supervisors, to a district system. Well, once we went to district elections, the system they put in place was a system where you had the first uh, one election in November, and if no candidate won a majority in that election, you'd have a second election in December among the top two finishers in that November election. And the problem with December runoffs is that they were hugely unpopular. No one wanted to vote in December, the middle of the holiday seasons. And, you know, candidates had a hard time generating turnout at that time of year. So voter turnout usually plummeted, sometimes by as much as 40 percent in that second election. So it was really, you know, not a good system. And in the meantime, it was very expensive both for candidates who had to pay for that second election and taxpayers who had to pay for that second election. And here's where things started heading toward ranked choice voting. Fair Vote, Hill's organization, put forward a ballot measure eliminating the need for a runoff election. Rather than schedule a later election between the top two vote-getters if no candidate gets more than half the vote, candidates are ranked. The thinking is, on a ranked ballot, voters are already showing who they would pick in a runoff. But nobody has to do the work of operating a whole other election, and nobody has to show up to vote a second time. And so, you know, it's really quite interesting to me, as someone who's been involved with this from the beginning, I hear a lot of people, sort of the newcomers saying, oh, here's why they did this. It's to favor the progressives, or it was to favor the moderates, or it was to elect Republicans. And it's like, no, it really wasn't about that at all. It was just about, look, we're having two elections to do what we can do in one election. It's, it was really an efficiency argument. Think about how many elections we're having this year. November will be our fourth. That's partly because of primary and runoff elections for a state seat. This mechanism is why ranked choice voting was originally called instant runoff voting. Hill says the reason we and many others changed to ranked choice voting instead is our very own elections director, John Arntz. He said, ah, I've never done this before. I'm not going to run the tally until Friday after the Tuesday election. And so he didn't want to convey the idea that the results would be instant. And so J Director Arntz, wow. Director John Arntz, <laughs> changed the name on his own unilaterally to rank choice voting. That, <laughs> that is the honest to God truth. That is Pretty a funny, fantastic story, and I really like it. Isn't it? <laughs> we checked with Arntz, who confirmed he coined this phrase. We as the advocates were like, can he do that? Can he just, I mean, that's like our reform. How can he change the name like that? Well, he just did it. Two decades later, Hill says the results are promising. So the voter turnout is much higher than it ever was under a December runoff election. So we've increased turnout. People of color are winning seats in more and much higher numbers. You know, we've saved taxes for we don't have that unnecessary second election. And the quality of campaigns has gotten a lot better. That is not a universal assessment. Jason McDaniel, an associate professor of political science at San Francisco State University, is a well-known critic of the ranked choice voting system. 
though not a particularly vehement one. It's the kind of thing we've seen in America going back, you know, uh, you know, more than a hundred years. The idea that when there's issues, when there's problems, when there's you know extreme conflict, perhaps that we often turn to if we can change the way we vote or you know in some way, then maybe a sort of true democratic results will come about. And I think that's shown over our history to be somewhat of a misunderstanding or a mistaken idea. I don't think ranked choice voting is the worst thing as long as people have clear preferences. I talked with McDaniel and Hill about some of the main arguments on ranked choice voting. One point of disagreement between the two is how we should consider the effects of this system on turnout. Generally, advocates of representative democracy would say the more people voting, the better. On that, these two, of course, agree. But does ranked choice voting improve participation? It kind of depends on how you look at it. McDaniel was skeptical of this claim from the start. So when I first encountered it, my first thought was this is a little bit more complicated than systems that I was used to before that most Americans still use. It seemed to me more complicated. Not that it's too complicated necessarily, but it was more complicated. Reformers, especially in the progressive era in the early 1900s, you know, wanted to change, you know, politics, often, you know, uh, fought against what they perceived as corruption in city politics, and instituted a lot of the ways we vote today were sort of created at that time. The idea of voter registration, the idea of nonpartisan elections, that kind of thing was created. As a political scientist, I also know that that also had an effect of of kind of lowering voter turnout. A lot of those reforms made voting, voter turnout, and voter participation lower. And that's not the only thing that that did did that, but it, it contributed to it. And so the idea that immediately occurred to me was when you make something more complicated, we should expect some, on the margins, some negative consequences. And so I, I went about trying to research those and, and find them. I hypothesized that we would see lower turnout, hypothesized that we might see more ballot errors, as well. And in some earlier research, I found support for both of those arguments. I studied uh, San Francisco elections before and after the adoption of ranked choice voting and found some evidence to support my idea that there had been lower voter turnout and that it was associated with the adoption of ranked choice voting. About two weeks ago, I presented brand new research that compares voting in all of the cities that have adopted ranked choice voting for their mayoral elections to voting to 200 other cities uh, before and after ranked choice voting adoption. And I find significant reductions in voter turnout of about two to four percentage points, which is quite substantial. In my recent research, I document quite clearly in some cases that it's not exactly reducing turnout. In some cases, there's no change in turnout. It looks like that after a few elections, that negative effect goes away. Hill dismisses this research entirely, saying the studies that found this focus too narrowly on too few elections, and the sample sizes are too small. Studies on this that I looked over had mixed findings. Ranked choice voting might be associated with a dip in participation, but it's pretty small. Also, and McDaniel noted this too, that effect appears to be mitigated as voters get used to the system. But conceptually, Hill has a different objection. He says comparing ranked choice election turnout with plurality voting primaries is a mistake because he says there have been drops of as much as 40 percent between elections and runoffs. So a more reasonable comparison, he says, would be between the runoff and the ranked choice vote. I mean, why, why wouldn't you compare it to what we were doing before? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. For example, in Oakland, where voter turnout also is up because they used to have a system where Candidates ran first in June, and if someone got a majority, that was the end of it. 
and they didn't have an, a November election for city council or, or local offices. And voter turnout in June was always lower than it is in November. So basically, anytime you're finishing an election in a non-November election, you're going to have low voter turnout. And, and so ranked choice voting in Oakland ended the June primary. So now they have only one election and it's over in November. Now voter turnout is higher there. San Francisco now is ending the elections in November instead of December, and voter turnout is higher as a result. Another benefit to ranked choice voting that Hill lays out is that he says people of color are much more likely to get elected under this system because they're more likely to run. According to the Equity Atlas, a project of the think tank PolicyLink, this is also true for district rather than at-large elections. San Francisco has both for its board of supervisors. Under the previous at-large system, and even under the first district elections before we started using ranked choice voting, number of, of people of color winning election on their own terms, not without being appointed by the mayor, was quite low. And I think, you know, like we have 18 office holders that are elected by ranked choice voting. And right now, uh, 11 out of 18 of them are people of color. And uh, women have always done well with ranked choice voting. The gay community has always done well with ranked choice voting. And you know, if you look at other cities too, you see the same thing. I mean, New York City is the most amazing story I've seen recently. So they used ranked choice voting for the first time last year. And before that election, out of 51 city council seats, 14 of them were held by women. Now, 31 are held by women. 60% of the city council of New York City, the biggest city in the United States, are held by women. 25 of them are women of color. So they almost have a woman of color majority on the New York City City Council. Hill and other researchers attribute this diversifying effect to district elections being less expensive to compete in and ranked choice contests eliminating what's known as the spoiler effect. And the reason why is because before women and people of color, would they be told, look, if you run there's other women of color, there's other people of color in this race, you're going to split the vote. And so you're going to knock each other off. And that was true. That did happen. Now with ranked choice voting, voters can say, well, I like this one first, but I can put this one second and I can put this one third. So suddenly the split votes that happen in the spoiler candidates don't happen anymore in San Francisco or New York City or these other cities like they used to. And so it really encourages this politics of mobilization instead of, you know, zero-sum game, if I win, you lose. You know that saying, hold your nose and vote? In a ranked choice system, you don't have to vote for someone who has a better chance, but isn't what you really want, for fear of letting the other one win. This is a benefit that at least one mild critic of the ranked choice voting system also sees. I do think when it's been studied in other countries, you know, relying upon research then from places like Australia and Ireland, we see that there is less of that spoiler effect. People will then give their votes to their more sincere, what we call sincere voting, so that if there's somebody who prefers a smaller party, who does not have a chance to win in a more majoritarian system, right, they'll then vote for that party in a more sincere ideological way, but then rank Below them, the, the parties that are, for instance, uh, more likely to win in, you know, the overall election and be seated in the parliament, and therefore then is not wasted in that regard. So there is definitely evidence for that. To be clear, neither of my guests is saying ranked choice voting means a candidate who can't get broad support in a winner-take-all election suddenly gets an edge and wins under ranked choice, even though one particularly unhappy politician has been pushing that idea. You have that ranked choice crap voting. We'll get to that after a break. 
San Francisco uses a system called ranked choice voting for many local offices. I've been talking about how it works with Stephen Hill, the architect of ranked choice voting in San Francisco and other Bay Area cities, and Jason McDaniel, associate professor of political science at San Francisco State University. Both of my guests stressed that it's very rare for a candidate who doesn't have broad support to win with ranked choice voting. This is Stephen Hill. In most San Francisco elections using ranked choice voting, the candidate who is in first initially wins the election after the ranked choice voting tally. It's rare for a candidate to come behind from second or third place. It has happened a few times, but it's rare. So, I mean, these are candidates who would have more votes initially than anyone else. You run the RCV tally to take into account second and third rankings and see who has the broad base of support, and they still win. So they're winning essentially under two systems, both plurality and ranked choice voting. So how can you possibly make an argument that they wouldn't normally win without ranked choice voting when they're in first place? I mean, you know, if you could say, sure, if we had a second election, then they won't win. But who you don't really know that. Here's San Francisco State Professor Jason McDaniel on that question. There's only been one election that I know of in San Francisco where the first place vote getter, the sort of the main, the preferred candidate of the first most people on the first ballot didn't win. Malia Cohen, who became a supervisor, and she won her election to the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco, despite the fact that she was not the preferred candidate in the first first round of voting. So we also saw that in Oakland. The mayor of Oakland, Jean Kwan, uh, was elected, even though she was not the preferred candidate in the first place voting. So the ranked choice voting, in rare cases, I, I want to say single-digit percentages of, of elections, where the non-preferred candidate of the first of most people uh, goes on to win. It does happen. It's part of the ranked choice voting process. I don't think it's anything illegitimate about that. But I don't think it necessarily changes who wins that much. And so if people expect there to be different results or clearly different results, I think we'll be uh, disappointed. I think it tends to reward candidates who have a broad base of support, who are preferred by a lot of people, right? And so... That can be okay in some places. Both guests referred to that mayoral race in Oakland where Jean Kwan won. Hill attributed that win to Kwan's willingness to court people's second-choice votes, which he and other advocates for this method say is another benefit of ranked-choice voting. He says the possibility of winning over second- and third-choice votes incentivizes candidates to do less mudslinging. If I have to attract voters who might prefer you, but they think I'd do a decent job too, I don't want to alienate them by dragging you through the muck. McDaniel, the political scientist, says there's some evidence of that, but also evidence that there's a different division between voting camps. Racial polarization. Not in the sense that people tend to vote for candidates who share their racial identity, but rather that the preferred candidate of one racial group is often not the preferred candidate of other racial groups. That might mean that it's harder for a minority group to get their preferred candidate elected if other bigger groups have very different preferences. Race tends to be the primary dividing line in municipal elections in cities in the United States. That's what I am really most interested in. And so building coalitions along and across racial lines, I think there's some potential benefit for that. Again, I think we saw some evidence for that in Oakland in in 2010. We've seen some evidence for that, I think, in San Francisco, where we have two kind of multiracial coalitions that are competing with each other. So I think there's some potential benefit for that, but it's still a lot to be studied. One thing I was wondering about is whether ranked choice voting is more popular in places where the political lines are less clearly drawn, so voters might like more than one candidate. I talked to McDaniel about that. 
it might make sense to have choices that you can rank between things that you like a little bit more and a little bit less. Like you're being asked to rank your favorite foods and the options are, you know, like, I don't know, pizza, cake, and spaghetti. And then somewhere else where you have really polarized elections, you might end up being asked to rank your choices ranging from pizza to like broccoli. I love broccoli, but whatever. But let's say like I'm being asked to rank those. It might not even be worth it for me to rank anything because besides the one obvious choice, everything else is trash to me. Well, I'm more of a Brussels sprouts person, I think. But I mean, ironically, so so my research is so far, it's been in cities and the cities that have adopted ranked choice voting are nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. And so it, that is actually a difficult task for people to choose between candidates who might be similar, but if, if they had, you know, party label differences, voters go, oh, okay, that would make the choice easier for them. This is where my guests totally diverge. Stephen Hill from Fair Vote also brought up foods as an example. I think it's intuitive for people. You know, you pick, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Oh, I like, you know, Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia. What's your second flavor? You know, what's your third flavor? So I think you're tapping into a capability that people not only can do, but do do throughout their daily lives. But Jason McDaniel says it's not really a great analogy. It's actually, ironically, I think a little bit harder for people to rank candidates, you know, than it is food choices, to use your metaphor, right? I think we have, you know, pretty clear defined taste sometimes. We perhaps have more experience choosing the foods we like rather than choosing the candidates we like. And it's a more complicated task, perhaps, Hmm. choosing candidates. So I think it's a, a tougher task. Regardless of how ranking candidates compares with ranking foods, I asked Stephen Hill, isn't asking voters to rank several choices, up to 10 in San Francisco, more work than asking them to just pick their favorite? The way you typically figure out are people confused is you look to see are they making a mistake on their ballots. And so there is something called an invalid ballot. Sometimes it's called an overvote. And every election, you can look at what the rate of invalid ballots are. And in San Francisco, generally, the rate of invalid ballots has been about 0.2%. We actually did a study of this, and that election, the the rate of invalid ballot was 0.4%. That's extremely low. Again, the existing research seems to be mixed. Whatever the error rate is, both my guests seem to agree that better ballot design and voter education can help reduce mistakes. One mistake might be ranking multiple candidates first. That won't give them all an equal chance. It'll get your ballot tossed. But only choosing one candidate as your first choice and not ranking any others is not a mistake. It just means that if your first choice is eliminated, you won't get any say in the next round. This is called ballot exhaustion. All the candidates a voter chose have been eliminated. Now they don't get a voice in the next round of tallies that'll decide the election. That's one of the critiques of ranked choice voting. Maybe people don't have a strong enough opinion or enough knowledge of, say, seven different candidates to rank each one. So they just rank the top two or their favorite, and then they only get a say in one or two rounds of tallying. Hill and other advocates say most voters don't seem overwhelmed, and research generally shows the majority of voters do rank more than one candidate. The number of rankings that people are using is quite high in some of these uh, recent San Francisco elections. Two-thirds, 70 percent, sometimes as high as 80, 85 percent of voters are using second, two or three of their rankings. You know, that doesn't seem to indicate that they don't know what they're doing. When San Francisco first started using ranked choice, you actually couldn't rank more than three candidates. The ability to rank up to 10 was added in 2018. 
So I was surprised to learn that some places with a rank choice system, you are required to rank every single candidate. I've seen elections where the number of exhausted ballots exceeds the final margin. Uh, right? Oh, no. And, and this is not that uncommon. And so, you know, that's why, by the way, some districts require people to vote and rank all uh, the candidates. That's the solution to that. Okay. Now, again, so this gets complicated, you know, but but again, I don't think this is a fatal flaw of ranked choice voting at all. But I will say that it, that it adds to some of the, the thorny problems about majority rule. This happened in a race McDaniel mentioned earlier, the 2010 Board of Supervisors election in San Francisco, where Malia Cohen won. She was among the top first choice vote getters, though not the top. But there were 20 rounds of tallying in that election. By the end, there were more than twice as many exhausted ballots as votes for Cohen. This is the kind of example critics give to show how ranked choice voting doesn't always result in the election of someone who got the majority of votes. But concerns like this pop up even in cases where a plurality election would also have won someone a seat without a majority, where the final winner did get the majority of first choice votes. Critics of then-District Attorney Chesa Boudin were saying he shouldn't act like he has a mandate from the electorate when he only won 38% of first-choice votes. At a state level, disappointed Republicans are unhappy about a recent ranked-choice vote in Alaska. Democrat Mary Peltola recently beat Sarah Palin to a congressional seat, and one former president was really unhappy about that. You have that ranked-choice crap voting. If you're in fifth place, you get points. If you're in third place, you get points. How many people? All right, Sarah Palin won, but we had a couple of people in second place. We're going to give them the victory, right? You know, you got to watch that. This is really horrible what's going on with our election. That's not how it works. Like I said before, neither of my guests says moving the system to rank choice means suddenly candidates without much support will win. More likely, we'll see what happens in races without a spoiler effect. That's where two similar candidates split a majority and hand the victory to a third candidate who has less overall support. Here's political scientist Jason McDaniel again. The evidence is pretty clear that if the other Republican in the race had made it to the final two, probably would have won, right? But so Sarah Palin crowded out that candidate, and then some of that candidate supporters uh, supported the Democrat instead of Senator Sarah Palin. But if it had gone a little bit different under the previous system, it might have been a different result. And I think a lot of Republicans are going to see that as ranked choice voting is bad for Republican candidates, where it's not necessarily, by the way. And I think a lot of Democrats are going to see it as, you know, ranked choice voting is good for Democratic candidates, which again, it's not necessarily. Stephen Hill from Fair Vote points out, Trump and Palin may be angry about ranked choice voting right now, but the system isn't inherently favorable to one party. Those sorts of Republicans don't seem to like it. But other Republicans like Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, uh, you know, he and other Republicans credit ranked choice voting with him winning in Virginia because there he was running against a Trump Republican and ha had Trump's endorsement and uh, were really spending a lot of money there. And there were a number of more moderate candidates in that race against that Trump Republican, Glenn Youngkin being one of them. If they hadn't had ranked choice voting, the same thing would have happened, which led to Trump getting the nomination. The Trump the extreme candidate with a strong core of support would have emerged as the victor because all those other moderate Republicans would have split that moderate vote and none of them would have had enough to win that election. And that's what happened. Ranked choice voting might mitigate the spoiler effect, but it can't completely upend a two-party system. And I think a lot of people want it to be a multi-party system and they think ranked choice voting might 
make that happen. But it's not going to happen. If we want a multi-party system, it needs to be, have other things happen first. Even in San Francisco, where we don't have political parties duking it out, we've got entrenched political blocks. And unfortunately, entrenched problems. Hill brought up homelessness and housing, which have been problems and political wedges for decades. And I don't know that they will go away because, and they're even worse now because of the cost of housing. So, you know, you reach a point where is there any kind of electoral method that can deal with some of the complexities of these issues? You hope there is. In our conversation, he floated going in a new direction. That's where I think we need to now transition again away from the single seat district system that we've been using now for the past 20 years to a system of proportional representation because you can get candidates elected that are going to advance you know, more innovative solutions to housing. San Francisco has tried a few different ways of electing its representatives. Could it be that next up is a system of nonpartisan proportional representation? That's for an election sometime in the future. On this next ballot in November, we could be making a different change to our elections. Proposition H would move city elections to even years when we vote on higher offices too. Analysts are saying it could dramatically increase participation in elections. So we'll be voting on how we vote, again. A simple yes or no will do for this one though, no ranking required. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. And we wanna check out your ideas. Do you have a solution you want the city to pursue? Do you know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. Next time on Fixing Our City. The police department isn't the only public service that's really short-staffed. City employees from the health department to street cleaners to emergency dispatch have been saying, for the city to work... We need more city workers. See you next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext. <laughs>